This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. Welcome again, everybody, to the 100th episode of the Disney Film Project podcast. Woo! That's right, 100 episodes. I know, look, it's, it's everyone's here, all of our friends, family. Okay, accurately speaking, it's just the four of us. That's how it should be, right? Yes. yes. Comfy, cozy, hanging out on a couch together, sipping tea. By the fireplace. It, it is getting rather chilly. Scones. You guys are all crazy. It's not chilly. It's cold today. It It is cold today. today. Yes, it was. Anything that requires a light jacket is getting cool. I needed a light jacket this morning. I was shivering. You did not need a light jacket this morning. It was not cold. Yes, it was. (laughs) Totally. It is. Anyways, scones by the fireplace. This is what we do on our 100th episode, is we argue about the cold. So thank you for listening. No. That is not what we're doing today, uh, and in case you have not listened to the show before, what we do, in fact, is talk about Disney movies. I know it's shocking, but that's what we do. We love them, we watch them, and we talk about them here on this program. Uh, I'm Ryan Kilpatrick. I, I am the host of the show, along with these folks, and over at DisneyFilmProject.com, I do the exact same thing, only in written form. You can get the verbal version here, the written version there. I know. It's nuts. It's crazy. We Just whatever you need, we try to provide it for you. Uh, and helping me do that is one Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is a blogger at touringplans.com, chief technical officer at disneydrivenlife.com, works at onthego.co.com, and is actually the first live-action animation hybrid known to man. <laughs> oh, yeah, here I am. I'm screwy. <laughs> People don't know that about you, but you are actually a live-action animation hybrid. I am. You yeah, know, it's, in my, it's in my bones. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> things that people learn, right? In the in the uh, in the hundredth episode, we we lay it all out there. Also, yeah, yeah, of course, we have Miss Brianna Alessio, who is blogs on her own over at Adventures of Breed, adventuresofbreed.blogspot.com. She is not actually an animation live-action hybrid, although you might think so when you see her bouncing up and down with glee. <laughs> I do have a Tigger complex. This is true. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> How are you today, Ryan? I, I am very well. Very yeah. well. Thank you. Yeah. Happy, happy to have been doing this for 100 episodes with, you, with all of you fine people. It's exciting. It really is. And I, I love our little podcast family. And the final member of that little podcast family is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who is the producer of this fine show and edits this all together to make it some semblance of normalcy, reality, and coherence. Uh, you can find her over at about.me slash Cheryl P3 or on Twitter at Cheryl P3. How are you, Cheryl? I'm doing good, I, but I'm going to be on an editing editing spree so I can go on a boat ship in two weeks. So 
sea correction ship. Two right. weeks. Boot. Yes, you're being shipped off to sea. Yes, that's right. Cheryl has joined the Navy. <laughs> oh. No, that's not correct. It's cruise time at the Pearl Letter household, which is always a fun time. Yes, but we'll be back by the time you're listening to this. Yeah, more than likely. Yes. Because of the time travel machine, right? Time travel rocks. Yes. <laughs> All right, so today for our 100th episode, we saved one of the Disney classics. No, it's not the White. No, it's not Cinderella, because we already did that one. It's not Aladdin. No. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yay! Yay! Because when you think wonky sluices and little bits of trivia in a movie and, and diversions and talking about things that aren't the actual plot of the movie, what better movie to do that with than Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I agree. Or Clue, but we're not a podcast that can do Clue, so there you go. We, we might. They we might. I'm just saying. Uh-huh. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Yes, it <laughs> Yes, it would. <laughs> right now, we, Betsy. Not right now, Betsy Bates just careened off the road when we. I know. Really <laughs> <laughs> did. That, that'll be on our upcoming Tim Curry extravaganza, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Who framed Roger Rabbit? Okay, if you if you're a Disney fan and you haven't seen this, first of all, stop. Go. Yeah, we'll wait. Remember, yep. we like cookies. We do like cookies. You can go rent it from Amazon. You can actually go buying. Wait, buying this movie is very expensive right now. Currently, yes, it is. this yes. year in 2012, this is that's how we can say that. Um, buying this movie is really expensive right now. Go rent it off of Amazon for the three bucks, and then wait till it comes on the Blu-ray and buy it then. <laughs> that's right, because next year is its 25th anniversary, folks. Just weeks away from you listening to this podcast if you're listening to it like right after you download it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Not the Blu-ray, 2013, just yes, to be clear. that's right. The Blu-ray will come out in 2013. Uh, but th- because this movie came out in 1988, it is, uh, was released not by Walt Disney Pictures, but by their subsidiary Touchstone Pictures. Yes. And as we say, we always, uh, we always hit the subsidiaries, folks. We do. It was like a mess of people involved in this uh, movie, by the way. Because it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's also a Steven Spielberg movie. That's right. Yes. Amblin Entertainment. Yes. Mm. And and Silver Screen Partners, right, which at the time was being run by uh, an ex-president of ours. Jimmy Carter. No. Oh. He's an ex-president now. George George W. Bush uh, ran Silver Screen Partners for, well, he was on the board for many years. Oh, well, look at that. Yeah. So this has the presidential seal of approval. Pre-presidential seal of approval, I think. Gotcha. Okay, good to know. But yes, it was produced by Steven Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment, mainly because this was going to be when Disney uh, start, started setting this up. They bought the rights to the movie, or to the book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, back in 1981. And as they started figuring out how they were going to do this, uh, they figured that it was going to be extremely expensive. And they needed somebody to come on board who would, A, help shoulder some of the cost, and B, help make sure it was a hit. And in yes. both cases, that man was Steven Spielberg. Yes. And they did use um, stuff from... They did use money from Silver Screen Partners, too, because that's pretty much what they do, is they funded... They, for when they existed, they funded Disney movies. So the movie is a combination of live-action and animation. It, it was not... As, as many people have 
stated before, the first combination of those two things. Um, there's there's a lot of misinformation about that out there. I don't really know why because you know the combination of live action animation was being done back in the 20s. Uh, it is not the first, but I think we could probably agree it is the best. Um, yeah, well, there are reasons for that. Um, they spent a lot of time with the, to change the technology of that sort of thing. They tried to overcome some of the hurdles of, te- of the technology because if you look at things like Mary Poppins or bed knobs and broomsticks because they're just laying the animation cells right on top of the regular film it, or vice versa, it ends up with a grainy feature set to it. Right. And they worked very hard to isolate the animated elements into like little individual f- film pieces to make them blend more naturally with the surroundings and not cause that graininess to occur. Yeah. So. Yeah, they did a, a lot of work on on the the figures like like you're saying. I mean the um not just not just the the texture but also get making the the figures seem three-dimensional and using and then making them reflect the lighting from the uh the scene from the live action piece. Yes. Which they, is they, astounding. <laughs> yeah, they went. They went to great. They would redo pieces just to match whatever the lighting that was underneath in the film. Like, so if they were recording Eddie sitting next to like nothing, well, Bob Hoskins sitting next to nothing, and when they put Roger next to him, they would say, "Okay, well, these were the shadows that were on what was underneath where Roger is. So let's apply those same shadows to Roger when he sits in the seat." That's right. Yeah. So, so as a result, they had uh, more than 85,000 cells that went into this movie that were then cut up into individual pieces. And so some, some scenes would literally use hundreds upon hundreds of little tiny pieces of, of uh, animation cell. Wow. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's crazy. So Robert Zemeckis was the director of the film, the overall uh, but the the animation itself was actually done in London because uh, it was done by Richard Williams, who was an animator. And something important to remember at this time, Disney uh, was not actually really doing a whole lot of animation at this time, at this period, right? In 1988 they were, but this film started production long before that because of all the animation they had to do. And because of the fact that the cartoon characters are in almost every scene, it's basically a full-length animated movie and a full-length live-action movie uh, kind of doing dual production at the same time. So I think – I don't know for sure, but I think it actually started production uh, back in, like, 1985. I'm not sure either. Yeah. I know Zemeckis was hired in 85. Uh, and Richard Williams was hired in 85. I don't know whether they got started in 85 or 86, but still – two to three years to get this movie up on the big screen. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental problem with it was the studio had at some point in the mid eighties decided almost completely that they didn't want to do animation anymore. Right. Right. And so they didn't have the, the manpower to produce this. Right. So they, right. Which is why they farmed it out to other studios. Now, Williams came in and he was just a really good pick because he is a huge fan of animation and cartoons. Huge, huge fan. Absolutely. Okay. And his, his goal was to make the movie have three basic elements to them, to it. Uh, it he wanted Looney Tune-type characters, Disney-style animation, and Tex Avery's humor. Okay. Mm-hmm. So basically, that is, in his mind, what Roger became. 
because if you look, that is that is Roger Rabbit right there, right? He is a he is definitely Looney Tune in attitude, definitely Disney in animation style, and he is completely Tex Avery's humor, right? All in one character. That's what Roger yep. Rabbit's supposed to be. Um, in, in addition, he's also designed to have Goofy's overalls, Mickey's gloves, and Porky's bow tie. Oh, I love it. Yes. Okay. And he, he he just like the film is is a melding of all these different styles because that was a big part of why Spielberg was brought on as well as he was the one who was able to convince Warner Brothers and MGM to loan Disney the characters from their animated cartoons in order to appear side by side with the Disney characters in the movie. Yeah, there were some uh, limitations to that though. <laughs> Major ones, yes. Major yes. ones, like like you may notice uh, things when you watch the movie. Um, or you may remember if you've watched the movie already, is that um, there's no scene where that Mickey appears in that Bugs Bunny does not appear in. Right. Beca- because they have to have equal screen time completely yes. and equal number of lines even. That's right. So that was the requ- so that was the way that Disney chose to solve the problem was to say, okay, we'll do that. We'll just make sure this is how it works. Is that that's why they're always talking to each other because there's an even exchange of lines all the time and nothing changes on the cutting room floor. So. That's right. Uh, it bit them later, though, right? For for doing for making the deal with Warner and Spielberg. Yes. All right. Because what happened is, is after the success of the movie is um, you might remember that the Disney Afternoon was a big thing on Very. television, right? And oh, yeah. They they desperately wanted to create a Roger Rabbit animated series for the Disney Afternoon. But what happened was Amblin Entertainment and Spielberg wouldn't allow it because – do you know why? Anybody? Be- no. Because they wanted to do Animaniacs instead? That's right. Tiny Toons and Animaniacs oh, were oh, in oh. pre-production. Ugh. Okay. So what happened was is that uh, they created Bonkers instead. And you may notice that Bonkers Bobcat, his uh, animation frame and and – Attitude and styling is exactly the same as Roger Rabbit's, and that's why. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. I never watched Bonkers. No, me neither. I barely remember it, but I've watched it because <laughs> I watch yeah. everything I can watch. So. Yeah, this is de- definitely a movie that. You, you, you probably will not see something like this ever again, right? The studios are much more protective of their, their intellectual property than they were back in the 80s. And they were pretty protective back then. Uh, but now it's gotten to, you know, huge heights. But yeah. bringing all, uh, you know, the Warner Brothers characters, the, uh, the MGM characters, the Universal characters like Woody Woodpecker, um, several others, Felix the Cat and, and others, in one movie is crazy. I mean, there were some that Spielberg couldn't get, right? He couldn't get people like Popeye or Tom and Jerry or some of the others. But to get all of those characters into one movie uh, is huge. And the problem with that is Spielberg had to, because he was the one that did that, they had to give him a very large amount of control. (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah, I I know there was a big to-do because they went... There was a scene written that where they really wanted us uh, Fleischer Superman to be in, and yes. they couldn't. They couldn't even come close to getting that. No, not at all. So, yeah, um, it, there are just 
hundreds and hundreds of animated characters and background animated characters and on and on and on in this entire thing. It'd be crazy for us to sit here and try and list them all. So we'll just yeah. like throw them in as we want to while we talk. You know, it's it's nice they're in there. You'll enjoy every one, but it's uh, we're not listing them out. <laughs> I'm not listing yeah. them out. <laughs> yeah, they're they are everywhere throughout the entire movie. Yeah, um, but it wasn't just the characters, right? Because they also got voice actors involved, right? Yes. Oh yeah, like um, the Mel Blanc. Before, this is before he passed away. I mean, he does the majority of the Looney Tunes characters, just like he did in the originals. Yep. Yes, but this is this is a, if you like animation, and really this this film is what got a lot of people interested in the golden age of animation again. Um, this is a treasure trove of, of goodness. I mean, it, it features just about everybody from that golden age. Uh, because the the plot of the movie, which we should probably talk about, is the fact that cartoon characters live in Hollywood near the normal actors, actresses, and citizens of Los Angeles in Toontown. Yes. And that's the premise, is that they, you know, they walk around the same way as anybody else. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's, well, it's based on a, a book, right, called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, right? And, <laughs> yep. yeah, that's, that's the name of the book. Um, it's by a guy named Gary Wolf. And the, the plot of the book differs uh, quite a bit. Um... But basically, censoring is um, the word that they use for killing tunes in the book. Okay. Gotcha. It, it's called censoring uh, it's because they get censored out of the picture. That's the whole thing. But what happens is, is um, in the book, they can duplicate themselves, right? And he, and he gets killed, so his, one of his duplicates, which they only last a few days, beca- um, goes to Eddie Valiant to investigate his death. That's the book in a nutshell. Gotcha. Uh, very different. <laughs> very, very different. Because I know, you know there were several drafts of the screenplay for this thing written, and they really had a hard time coming up with who was going to be the villain. They switched um, a few t- times between Jessica and Baby Herman and, and finally settled on, on the Judge Doom character who ends up being the villain played by Christopher Lloyd. Yes. Yeah. yeah that was creepy. Yeah, there's a, the one script you can find online is a script of the Who Shot Roger Rabbit version. <laughs> Sorry. You just like all this Who, stu- who stuff? <laughs> yeah, it's, to me it's just hilarious. Do you, do you know something interesting? You, yeah. you know why there's no question mark on the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No, I don't. No. Because it's considered horrible bad luck, just like uh, mentioning the Scottish play. It's considered bad luck level. Don't put a question mark on a title that's going to be uh, filmed, film or television. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. Yep. There you go. I feel like I you should know something. that. But, yeah. You learn something new all the time. That's right. Uh, so, Bob Hoskins, you mentioned already, is uh, portrays the, main, the human lead character, which is Eddie Valiant. And then Roger Rabbit's portrayed by Charles Fleischer. And when watching the movie the other night, I have a question. Why was Bob Hoskins not nominated for an Academy Award? Right. I think because probably Hollywood didn't really know what to do with this movie when it was, came out. The people knew what to do, right? I mean, this was a right. very popular movie when it was in theaters. I remember that there was nobody... That, di- that I knew that didn't want to go see this movie. It was just that type of movie. Yeah. yeah. Like going yes, to see Avengers. Huge. Yes. Right. Very much so. 
Very much so. So yeah. yeah, so it's uh, it's just one of those things. It's so it's very. I, I completely agree. I mean, you have to realize that ninety nine percent of the time, okay, the man is talking to nothing or a stick. Yes. Okay. They would literally um, hoist like a stick with that had gloves on it and had ears on it, so he could tell roughly where to look. But sometimes they couldn't even do that because they knew they wouldn't be able to erase it right because the scene was too complex. So uh, it's really funny because because of that, the scenes when he wasn't in didn't have a stick for, to represent Roger. They by the way, Roger, not real folks. Sorry, I'm sorry to ruin that. <laughs> what? <laughs> don't even. Don't even. <laughs> um. So he would hit the wrong marks visually with his eyes. So what they would do is they would change the planned animation for Roger. So that's why sometimes you see Roger contort really funny or, like, stand crazy on his tiptoes to, to cover the fact that Hoskins is not looking at the right place. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, but, I, I mean, let's also consider the fact that Bob Hoskins is an English gentleman. And in this movie, he is not portraying an Englishman. No. Although I'm not sure what his accent is actually supposed to be throughout the I'm not. I'm not either, yeah. But the fact that he could completely change, like, because if you see interviews with him, if you, like, if you have the DVD or once you buy the Blu-ray in six, seven months, whenever it comes out, uh, and you see interviews with him that are on those discs, I mean, he is very, very English. Like, he has a very thick accent and behaves in that way, in a very proper way. And this is completely not that guy. I agree. There needs to be a retroactive Oscar for Bob Hoskins. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he just retired. He should get something like that. Did he? Yeah, he did. Uh, so there's been. We, let's talk about the the prequel planning since we, we might as well get that out of the way. Yes, please. Okay. So there has always been – well, so initially it wasn't going to be a sequel, right? It was going to be a prequel called Toon Platoon, which was going to be like the discovery of Roger Rabbit when he was, uh, when he was in World War II, right? It would be because it would be a few years before that. Okay, the movie, by the way, folks, is set in 1947, in case anybody didn't know. Yes. Uh, that's the actual year that the movie takes place in. So the prequel, I think, would have been like 1941, 1942 timeframe, okay? And Roger was discovered, and then it would be, you know, how he got out of being in the military to go be in Hollywood, which did happen in some cases if the, pers if the thing was popular enough, you know, go do the USO tour or something weird like that. However, um, it was abandoned by Spielberg. Spielberg said, I'm not doing this movie because of his involvement with Warner, and Warner was – he was already tied into doing, like we said, Tiny Toons and stuff like that. So it was reworked into a war movie, okay? But it would deal with his rise to stardom and from, from a war movie into his rise to stardom. So it took place after he got back from whatever the war, you know, from the war and he would become a Hollywood superstar. Uh, Alan Menken was even set to uh, do songs for the movie, right? Oh, wow. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know what else was going to happen with that movie? It was supposed to be done at the – what was at the time the Lake Buena Vista Studios but was about to gain another name. That'd be right. the Disney MGM Studios? Yes. Mm. Um, and uh, Eisner eventually ended up dropping it because uh, the budget was set to exceed $100 million, and he was not going to greenlight anything that expensive at that point in time. Yep. So. Thanks, thanks, Michael. We appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. really. He's, 
So, however, Zemeckis still wants to do a film. Yeah, I've, I have heard rumblings, and right. I can't say how credible they are, that, uh, you know, since Iger took over, that has been one of his primary things, is to get a Roger Rabbit sequel going, and that it's closer today than it ever has been. But who knows what that means? The, the question would be is who plays Eddie. Of course, they could make it – if they do it as a prequel, they could make it be Eddie's brother instead of Eddie, and they could get around the Bob Hoskins things pretty easily, I would say. Right. I don't know. I think they could have have it be like Eddie's son. There we go. And Roger's son. That would be awesome. Roger and Jessica's cool. son. Yeah. That would also be concerning, but that's a whole other story. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Interbreeding again. Interbreeding. Nice. Nice. Yep. All right. Uh, but so this one opens, uh, the, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, in case you haven't seen it, with a cartoon short of Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman. Can so. I just say that Baby Herman is one of the most disturbing characters I've ever seen in my entire life? You may, you may absolutely say that. <laughs> oh, my goodness, because, you know, this was the first time I'd seen this, so I was not expecting him to actually speak the way he speaks. <laughs> that was for the, the movie's a little towards the edgy side because, it it's, a t- because it's a touchstone film so yes right. more than a little i would say i would yeah. be kind thanks yeah, to our they're, friend they're jessica yeah <laughs> there you go exactly yeah but the the short the short that proceeds it it opens with a full length short feature cartoon uh which is roger taking care of baby herman like the mom walks out the door much like the old warner brothers cartoons so this cartoon is much more in the frame of a Looney Tunes than a Disney movie, than a Disney cartoon. It is way, way over on that side of the scale. Right. Well, it, it, in, as a movie within the movie sort of thing, it's not actually a Disney production. It's a maroon cartoon production. That's right. Right. There's a made-up animation studio involved. Yes. And eventually Disney would actually make two more Roger Rabbit shorts, uh, but they would not uh, – do any any more after that but they did make two more and put them in front of other movies later on that was kind of how they kept the roger rabbit brand going very similar to how they do toy story tunes these days yeah the well there's cartoons. also the there's the ride in disneyland that's right roger rabbit's cartoon spin yeah so there you go Ooh. Yep. it's a very it's a cute little ride it actually really is it is i agree and well, and let's not forget, there's Roger Rabbit references all over uh, Disney MGM Studios too. There is because Disney's of- Hollywood Studios get corrected there. <laughs> I know. Like I said, <laughs> Disney, when it was the Disney MGM Studios, there's Roger Rabbit references everywhere. They're still there. there. They're still kind of there. They're hidden. It's kind of like the Rocketeer stuff and the Dick Tracy stuff is all there but hidden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But. So the the short is basically, like I said, Roger taking care of baby Herman, and then uh, all these horrible things happen, like knives flying at Roger, he gets blown up like a balloon, he flies around the room, et cetera, et cetera. But it ends with him finally saving baby Herman from a hundred different horrible things, uh, but a refrigerator gets dropped on Roger's head, and instead of stars, he produces little birds that tweet around his head. And then we see cut, cut, and then that's when the camera pulls back, and we see that it's actually a live-action studio where they're filming this as opposed to an animated world. Yes. And the director comes in and, you know, calls off the shoot, and 
Eddie Valiant is standing there witnessing all of this. And that's our introduction to him. Yeah, I think it's good that they that they do this up front instead of play the game for too long. That they just say, you know what, this is how it is and accept that this is the world that you're watching the movie in. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, the short thing I like is interesting, too, because it's uh, they had not started – the Disney Studios had not made shorts since uh, Goofy's Freeway Troubles in 1965 at this point in time. Yes. Yeah, so that that's that is something we need to talk about because it there are a lot of characters in the movie who didn't appear until much later. Yes, a, a good example is like Speedy Gonzalez because, like we said, the movie takes place in uh, 1947, and characters like Speedy Gonzalez were not created until the 50s. Correct. Or, um, you know, Bugs existed earlier, but I don't think he was called Bugs Bunny in 1947. He still had his older name that I can't remember at this point in time, and he became Bugs Bunny in the early 50s. Yeah, and the most obvious example is the waiters in, in a later scene are the penguins from Mary Poppins, which they weren't are. until 1966. Yep. So I think you're supposed to presume that all of these tunes existed and then were cast in those roles later. That may be. That makes the most sense to me, at least. In, in some cases, anyway, yeah. Yeah. All right, So, but Eddie Valiant is there at the studio at the behest of R.K. Maroon, who is the owner of Maroon Cartoon Studios. Eddie goes up to his office, and Maroon has hired Eddie to figure out uh, what's going on with Roger Rabbit's wife, Jessica. And we don't know who Jessica is, just that it's his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the operating theory is that Roger is not performing well as his cartoon star because Jessica is cheating on him. And R.K. Maroon wants Eddie to go and snoop on him, get get it all sorted out, prove to Roger that it's either true or not true, and then Roger can go on doing his work. At least that's the premise that R.K. Maroon said. That's right. That's the story that we're given. And so it's at this point in the movie, it's pretty easy to accept it. That's right. Right. Um, so the Maroon Studios was uh, done at Renmar Studios. At the time, it was called Renmar Studios. Um, nowadays, you would it's called Red Studios for the because it's owned by the Red Digital Camera Company. You know those those hundred megapixel cameras that they now can shoot films with. But but you know what that theater originally was? That studio originally was. I, I don't. It was it was the home of Desilu Productions, and it, all of I Love Lucy was filmed and produced there. Oh, very nice. Oh, yeah. that is neat. So. <laughs> very nice. Okay. But so uh, Eddie then goes to uh, uh, the Red Car Trolley Bar, basically. It's a bar in front of the Red Car Trolley Station to, to visit uh, Dolores, his former flame. And, and get a camera from her so that he can do this job because Maroon gives him half the money up front and it will give him half uh, the rest of the day. And what we find out is that Eddie has spent a long time, um, shall we say, in the bottle. Yes. Can we back up a few? We absolutely can because there are things to talk about for sure. Yes. Yes, like I wonder what would happen had Ryan Kilpatrick printed out a check from Maroon Studios and flashed it over the, to the to the to tro- trolley driver over in Dizzy's California Venture. They would have taken it because they don't charge for the trolley. <laughs> I really <laughs> think that would be funny. 
Would they make you sit on the back? They might. I don't know. <laughs> can you sit on the back? That was my next question. Yeah, I don't know. See, that's all new to me. Ryan, so can you? Uh, no, you cannot. Oh, bah! Bummer. Curses. <laughs> By the way, did you catch what was on the Maquis when um, Eddie hops off the back of the the red car? I did not. Uh, it, it's foul uh, hunting. The Goofy short. Oh, very cool. Which is actually a 1947 Goofy cartoon. As opposed to the one that we will see later in the theater. Yes, as opposed to the one that we will see later in the theater. Um, also, you, you kind of um, get more about the interaction between the human world and the cartoon world and the stars and everything like that because there's this whole scene where uh, Dumbo shows up and you see the Fantasia characters <laughs> and Maroon mentions that they don't really work for money. The best part is they work for peanuts. They do. Yes. Well, yes, they do. At least in the case of um, Dumbo. Yeah. Dumbo. <laughs> that was a funny scene. <laughs> and, I, and I like how he has the Fantasia characters, but some of them are actually like working. Like there's a guy playing a flute or something like that to get the brooms from Fantasia to clean up some mess. Yeah, he's got a trumpet and he's playing a slow version of the song from the film. Right, and, yeah. so, and they're, they're just sitting there cleaning everything up. And I thought it was very clever to work oh. that in. Um, there is also, um, this is not just a matter of animated characters interacting with uh, live action people, but, but there are times when the live action people are holding animated items at a time when the animated characters are holding live action items. Yeah. Okay, so there's, That's true. It, it goes very deep. For example, if you, if you notice when um, Eddie is walking out of Maroon's office to leave the studio lot, he uh, almost gets hit by a pelican, and it's on a bicycle, but the bicycle is real, and the pelican is animated. Right. Okay, because in addition to sticks, they had remote control items that they would move around. Okay, and this is what they, – so they actually had a remote control bicycle, but what happens is it crashes, <laughs> Right. And the pelican ends up on the ground. That was not what was supposed to happen, but what they decided to do is because the bicycle crashed, they thought it'd be clever to animate the pelican crashing. So that was like an add-on because oh. one of their devices failed. I thought that was a cute little anecdote. That's cool. Yeah. That is cool. That was a cute little anecdote, Todd. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. There you go. See? Yeah, but the the... So the red car trolley in DCA in, in California Adventure, though, uh, back to that that point is yeah. actually from the 30s or so, so it's or the, even the late 20s. So it's a little earlier than than the 47, because it, you know the red car trolley started getting phased out as we see in this movie. So yes. I don't know, maybe maybe they maybe it's a different model than this. Um, perhaps. I mean, this was electric. I mean, I don't know if I mean I presume the ones at the studios. I mean that. Um, DCA California Adventure. Yeah, yeah, they are. At, at DCA are also electric, but I wonder if the ones in the 30s were or weren't, you know, because I know that that kind of thing was on again, off again, transition-wise. Right, right. So, yeah. But we do see or very early on, too, that the red car has been bought by this Cloverleaf company, but we don't know anything about that yet at this point. That is correct. And the sign going up. Yeah, and one thing we we have not mentioned yet is that this is while it is a, a comedy drama sort of movie, it's also a film noir, right? In that every it's it's designed as a film noir movie. It's actually sort of modeled after Chinatown, the Jack Nicholson movie, not mm -hmm. safe for kids. Just putting yes. that out there. 
uh, it's modeled to a degree after that, which is a noir film is basically characterized as being, you know, sort of an urban mystery sort of thing, but also characterized by the fact that really no one in the movie is purely heroic. Now, the difference in this movie would be Roger is, but other than that, everyone else still ha- has some sort of flaws, right? You don't have the white knight in shining armor like you do in, you know, like Avengers or something like that. Right. One of the requirements for a film noir is that the, the major protagonist is an anti-hero, not, not necessarily a complete goody-two-shoes. Correct, and that, that would be Eddie Valiant in this case. Yes. So, like I said, he goes to the bar where Dolores is upset with him because he has spent all this time drinking uh, instead of doing anything. We don't really know why just yet, right? No, we Uh, don't. But he gets the camera because he's going to take these pictures of Jessica and ends up at the Ink and Paint Club, which is a fantastic name. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we do kind of learn that he and Dolores had something – there was something going on with them because she mentioned something right. about a trip, and she looks longingly and sad. That's about the extent Correct. of it at this point in time. Right. It's because when he asked for the camera, she says it still got the shots from Catalina. So they took a trip to Catalina Island off the coast of L.A., which is a nice – at that time was a nice beach resort. Uh, but we don't know what ha- like what's happened between them or anything of that nature, right? Correct. So he goes to this bar, though, uh, the Ink and Paint Club, manages to get in. The password, anybody, to get in the bar? Walt sent me. There you go. Yep. How awesome is that? I love it. I like that. And the bouncer is a gorilla, which is funny because of bouncers are always said to wear gorilla suits. That's right. So that's, that's oh, the yeah. joke there. <laughs> yep. And uh, he so, walks into a very interesting scene, doesn't he? He does, because... Because it's a scene of basically a bunch of cartoon characters serving the wait. The waiters are humans, like we mentioned. The, the, the penguins. Uh, Betty Boop is one of the waitresses. Who, if you don't know Betty Boop, she's a black and white character, uh, and she has a nice interaction with um, with Eddie. And that is the original voice of yes. of Betty Boop. For her, it was her first time since 1939 voicing the character. Amazing at the time. So that is wow. Uh, yeah, the original character is May. The original uh, actress who voices is her is uh, May Questel, and the char- Betty Boop is actually partly designed to look like her. If you ever go look at older pictures of her. Okay. Cool. I like how the bar at first is like a dueling piano bar, like Jelly Rolls or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Donald and Daffy. Donald great. versus Daffy is great because yeah. uh, it, it, it's. It's a black and white conversation, right? They're they're very um, they have this battle, and the reason for the battle is because they're you know they're two sides of the same coin, right? And so what you see is you have Donald, who's a white bird on a black piano, and Daffy, who's a black bird on a white piano, and they're fighting over control of each other's pianos at some point in the middle of the whole thing. Oh yeah, very yeah. very violently, as a matter of fact. Yes, uh, cannons are involved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is good anytime you get cannons involved. Yes, and they're playing the uh, second Hungarian Rhapsody, which is a very common uh, piece of music to be used in Looney Tunes cartoons. Yes. Absolutely. So, he walks into seeing that scene, and when he goes to sit down, he sits down next to a gentleman in a strange coat or whatever who uh, shoots ink on him. Yes. 
Yeah. Eddie gets upset about it for a second, but the ink disappears, and it's disappearing ink, and it turns out that's Marvin Acme, who, again, going back to the Looney Tunes, if you remember your Roadrunner cartoons, where did uh, where did the Roadrunner, or, or rather the Coyote, order all of his stuff from? Acme. That's right. Mm-hmm. So Eddie sits down next to Acme right in time for the big act, which is Jessica Rabbit. That's right. Indeed. And if you don't know what Jessica Rabbit looks like by now, you've probably been living under a rock. Yeah, yeah she, Je- Jessica's a very, very interesting character. Probably the single character that has the most put into her outside of Roger. Makes sense. And I'm not joking on her figure. <laughs> <laughs> um, she She's voiced by Kathleen Turner. Okay. Her singing voice is Amy Irving. Now, wait, 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 wait. Did you know that Amy Irving is our Star Wars connection? I One of them. did. Yes. She, she auditioned for, for Princess Leia, right? She was the second for choice for uh, Princess Leia. So had something happened to Carrie Fisher, she would have been Princess Leia. Oh. So, wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, there's a lady named Betsy Brantley who was the performance model. That's someone who they, they – a lot of times for animation, they take a person and have them do facial movements and actions, poses and stuff like that to take drawings and sketches so they know how to animate the character. That's, who, that's the role she played. Uh, she was designed to um, have an attitude like uh, Veronica Lake did uh, for her character Ellen Graham in This Gun for Hire. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. There was a bit of uh, Lauren Bacall playing Slim from To Have and Have Not. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's why she says things, you know, that are very, very similar to her famous line about whistling, right? That's why, you know, that's how Jessica speaks and that's how she was designed to speak. Um, there's a bit of Betty Page in there, a bit of Marilyn Monroe. Kathleen Turner herself was part of the inspiration for the character. So there was a bit of Kathleen Turner thrown in there as well. Uh, basically an amalgam character, right? Uh, one, of the more yeah. inter- one of the more interesting things is that when they designed the character to accentuate her look, um, they actually had her breasts bounce up instead of down. Intentionally. Interesting. Okay. Yes. So lots went into Jessica. Yep. Absolutely. So Jessica comes out to sing, like you mentioned, with an Amy Irving singing voice uh, and, and sings Why Don't You Do Right. Yes. Which, which is, would be a sultry number is probably a good way to put it. Yes. It, it, it's, a, it was made, it's a song that isn't – everybody says it's a Peggy Lee song. It was made famous by Peggy Lee and Benny Goodman, but it's not really like Peggy Lee's song. Other people, many other people have sung it both before and after Peggy Lee. Yes. Fair. Um, but I like that. Did you catch her backup band? Uh, n- no, I didn't. Yes, it, it's the Crows from Dumbo are her backup band. Oh, oh. nice. Huh. <laughs> I didn't catch that either. That's yes. Funny. Now, Peg- Peggy Lee has a prior um, Disney connection, too, because she, she's the singing voice for He's a Tramp. Yes. And she That's does right. the character named Peg, right? It is named Peg in Lady and the Tramp, right? Yes. The, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, but so Eddie, as well as every other male in the bar, is extremely taken aback by Jessica's appearance. Uh, and she especially spends time flirting with Marvin Acme and with Eddie, since they're front and center. 
And it's afterwards that Eddie tries to sneak backstage to get pictures of her and Acme in Jessica's dressing room. He gets thrown out by the gorilla, but manages to uh, find a stool and look over, look into the window and get the pic- all the pictures that he needs. Uh, which all we hear is Jessica and Acme saying they're playing patty cake, which you assume, based on the tone of the movie, <laughs> is a euphemism. Right. Not so much. <laughs> it's it's not because when we when the pictures are being shown to Roger in RK Maroon's office, that's exactly what they're doing. They are actually playing patty cake. They are in fact playing patty cake. They are. How about that? <laughs> Which apparently is just as bad to Roger. Yeah. Yeah, to say to say the least. Yeah. Pretty upset about that. Very much so. Uh to the point where RK Maroon gives him a, a shot of, of bourbon, and when he does that, Roger sort of explodes. <laughs> literally. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely literally. Yeah. Well, more like uh, he, he boils out a steam whistle, basically. I don't know. Exploding is kind of sort of not right, at, right wording, but uh, he has a literal exploding, and he breaks glass and whistles and stuff. You you are correct, sir. Yes. yes. He, he doesn't actually blow into a million pieces. But but then they try and console him and uh he uh has a very negative reaction to the consoling. Yes, he he you know, Eddie tries to tell him that there's other fish in the sea and that sort of thing. Of course, Eddie's really only interested in getting his money, but uh he he's trying to tell him all these th- sorts of things and I- instead of listening, Roger overreacts and crashes out the window and leaves the shape of Roger Rabbit in the window frame. Which, I just want you guys to think about that for a minute. He wasn't actually there. Yes, they had to cut that out. Literally. And make it just appear, disappear, just like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it, it's it's very, very clever how they do stuff like that, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, because you don't think about it, right? There are films where they do this sort of stuff where you go, oh, look, that was cool how they did that. But mm-hmm. this, you don't at all. Yeah, yeah, because there's no, there's no, like, they had to take the window and the pane and the little bit of wall and the curtains and cut out the Roger silhouette and all of that. Yeah, it's astounding that, that they were able to do that. It's it's also one of the um, at the time when the movie was coming out, it was one of the many billboards and posters that they used was that silhouette in the window. Yes, and that's one of the things that's in Disney Hollywood Studios. Yes, you want to explain where? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> it's an <laughs> upper win- it's an it's an upper window. I think it's over Hollywood and Vine. Um, I know I I know Eddie Valiant's office is one of the ones in between Hollywood and Vine, right? It's a Yes, and, right. and uh, the tune-in lounge. But uh, I don't remember where, which window the thing is, but it probably is because it's roughly the same place. So Yeah. But what you should do is if you want to track some of this movie stuff, you should go to our friends Matt Hotchberg's website, studiocentral.com. He's been on the show before. He did um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with us. I don't remember the episode number, though. Yes, he did. Yes. Yes, you should you should go and check that out because he can tell you all the history of Roger Rabbit in the studios. Yes, and, and Dick Tracy and Rocketeer. He has stuff on all of that. We mentioned that all here on this episode already. So, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, now, what I like is that right after this scene when Roger's like kind of wandering around aimlessly and he pulls out his wallet. Right. Right. There's this. There's a photo of it that's him and Jessica at the Brown Derby. Oh. Oh, that's yeah. right. There is. Yeah. yeah. But the the people on the wall in the Brown Derby are Zemeckis, Williams, and Spielberg. Oh, I didn't know that. That's as, cool. As well as Mickey Mouse. Okay. <laughs> Missed that completely. <laughs> so nice. that's, def- that's definitely what people are going to want to go back and pause and look at really closely. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that in this movie. Yes. That was one of those points where I'm sure... At Cheryl, I paused a lot during this movie when we were watching the other night, so... Uh, yeah. No <laughs> doubt. No doubt. I, I know you were trying to find every little Easter egg in there, right? Well, it's also... I, I take a lot of notes... So, People may not realize, but I take a ton of notes when I watch a movie to prepare for the podcast, even if I've already seen it before, because I want to have, like, when Ryan walks through the movie like we are, I actually have my own version of the go-through-the-movie written out, and I have my notes inserted in and around it, so. There you go. And there's a lot going on in this movie, so you have to pause sometimes yeah. to just keep up. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a ton going on in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot to look at. Yes. Yes, because well, and you mentioned Rogers, you know, roaming around, and he's sitting actually in front of the Acme factory. Uh, but the, we then we get Eddie's point of view. Eddie goes back to his office, and we kind of see um, he had developed all the pictures, of course. And we see him looking through the pictures, and we see him with Dolores at Catalina. We also see him with his brother, and we don't know what happened to his brother. Yes, Theodore um, J. Valiant. That's yes. his brother's name. Teddy Valiant. Teddy Valiant. Yes. That's the name Teddy, on the Teddy. door. Yes. And he starts uh, starts drinking, and basically we see him wake up the next morning yeah. uh, because he's been – we assume at this point, right, that his brother's either missing, dead, something's happened to him, yeah. uh, and he's getting morose about that. And he's woken up by a cop the next morning because yes. somebody has killed Marvin Acme. I know. But did you catch all the um, little things – across his desk and his brother's desk when they're doing his little drunken stupor thing? There are tons. Yes. So, there, so there's, there's one newspaper headline that states that the... First of all, it states that they were valiant and valiant detective agency, and they, it also detects... says that one of the newspaper headlines says that they were the uh, private investigator to the Toontown Stars. Okay. okay. Um, and you learn that some of their famous capers were one was – and I say capers because it's a film horror movie, so you can use that word in context here. That's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, so uh, one of them was that they were able to return the kidnapped Huey, Dewey, and Louie to Donald. Nice. Okay. <laughs> the other one was that they managed to clear Goofy of spy charges. Oh. One that you can't make out some words on. Okay, but something about Mayor Mickey Mouse awards blank blank Toontown. Okay. Like, there's two words there, but I can't figure out what those words would be, and there's not enough to tell. So, um, you learn that um, in, their, in their life, in addition to being private eyes, before that they were cops, okay, and it calls them the clown cops, and it dates that as 1925, so about 20 years before the movie. And uh, you also learn that their dad was a clown in Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1906, which, guess what, is an anachronism. You know why? 
Because the circuit, Ringling Brothers didn't exist back then, right? Well, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey both did exist, but Ringling Brothers did not purchase Barnum and Bailey Circus until 1907. But they were not merged into the what you know today as Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus until 1919. Oh. Okay. There you go. And, and you know that uh, Eddie and uh, Teddy knew Dolores back as far as 1938 because there's a picture of the three of them. So you learn a little bit about the history in the background right there. Yeah. Just by going over his desk because none of that is read to you. That's all stuff that you have to pause right. and see. Well, and it's 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 a great texture too to the movie because, like I said, there's a whole lot of plot in this movie. Like it's very detailed, like most film noir is. Right, it's very detailed in the plot and the machinations and the back and forth. Uh, and, but there's also a lot of character depth. It's just that rather than hit you over the head with the character depth, like, hey, this happened to this guy and this happened to this guy, a lot of it is done in that same way. Like a lot of Eddie's character is established there, and then you know Bob Hoskins obviously brings that to life in a way that's consistent with what you see. Right. At this point, you have two out of three parts of the backstory for Eddie after that scene right you know you know the bit about Dolores in the beginning this is the next piece and then you get the next piece later on in the movie which is the final piece correct and once you have all three parts then Eddie can become more than those three parts which is part of his rebirth later on in the movie that's right Todd, didn't you say that Huey and Louie were also a misnomer as well because they weren't created until after the Um, time Ooh, ooh, no, I think they were good. I think I looked them up, and okay. I think they were in 19... They were in the late 30s. Yeah, 19... It was late 30s or 1940 or something okay. like that. Yeah, they were good. Okay. But that's and... when I started checking dates, was when I really... <laughs> I was not sure I knew he doing Louie. Yeah. One of the weird things that I thought that was interesting was that he, he knew that... Well, since he had been, obviously, on the force... He knew this cop because the cop had said to him, Eddie, if you needed money, why didn't you just ask me? Yeah, he did. Yep. So they had And a, um, yeah. the cop is also um, our Star Wars, is one of our Star Wars connections as well. Oh, what? He is. Yep, Lieutenant yeah. Santino. Yes. Was in the, was General Motti in the 1977 Star Wars. Yeah. I'm not sure who that is. I'm not either, but he was in... A, that's a, that's an original Star Wars connection right there. We're not having to go, like, like you know, 15-level video game. We're talking, like, original movie. That, very impressive, Cheryl. Oh, Todd, well he's the one you met. He's the one that gets choked. Wait, he's the guy who gets choked? No, he's not, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that was his name. See, I never, I never realized that. So this is a story, folks. Um, I went to um, <laughs> one of the conventions where you like meet, you wait in line to meet people, and you, they sign your a picture of them, and he gives you an option for his signature of a lot of headshots, which is very common for when you meet people or who have been in science fiction movies and other stars and stuff like that, or soap opera stars, for example. But in addition, he had a picture of the Death Star. And so I asked him, why do you have a picture of the Death Star? And he signed the picture, and it's awesome because he, um, he signs the picture, and then he puts an arrow from his sig- from above his signature, points to a dot on, that he draws on the Death Star, and he says, my office. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> 
Nice. All right, so where were we? Oh, that's right. Marvin Acme's dead. What an outrage. Uh, and Eddie goes to, goes to Marvin Acme, uh, goes to the Acme factory where someone has dropped a safe on Acme. Uh, and before Eddie can get too far along... On his it, head. Yes, on his <laughs> head. Let's be fair. Uh, before Eddie can get too far along and trying to figure out what happened, everyone has decided that Roger is the problem. Jessica, Jessica walks out and slaps Eddie for taking the pictures. Yeah. There's also yellow paint on a rope. Yes. And, and Roger's gloves are yellow, so that's why they think Roger did it. Correct. So everyone's convinced that Roger is the killer. And again, because, also because he blew up at RK Maroon and, and Eddie and said that he would do something about this. Uh, the night before, and before Eddie can get too, too far, uh, in comes Judge Doom, who Eddie's about to pick up the joy buzzer that Acme held in his hand, and Judge Doom stops him, and Judge Doom is played by Christopher Lloyd and is the judge of Toontown, and he has a bunch of weasel henchmen who are modeled after the weasels from the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but they're yeah. not, they are not the characters from that movie, but they're modeled after them. Yes. Yeah, I have because... an urge to punch one of them throughout the whole film. <laughs> yes, because they, they have more advanced weapons, and they're kind of sort of... Um, I kind of think of them like the weasel version of the Seven Dwarves in this case. Well, that's what they originally were supposed to be, if you did not know this. I didn't. Oh, yes. did you tell? Yes, originally they were going to be um, different, the, different names, sort of like the dwarves. And the ones that actually exist are Stupid, Greasy, Wheezy, and Psycho, and uh, Smart Rear End is the way I will say it. Okay. So those are the five that actually exist. But originally there were uh, two others, Slimy and Flasher. Oh, I can see why they got rid of the last one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, they were actually model, uh, they were modeled after the Weasels, but they you were given names and supposed to act like the Seven Dwarfs. Interesting, because I, I just felt that way, so I guess they kind of carried that through okay then, because I've always felt that way about it. So Yep, yep, that was, that was the plan. Um, it, it's interesting, too, because immediately Doom doesn't like Eddie, and Eddie doesn't like Doom, even though they've never met before this point from the conversation that goes on. That's right. Okay, and uh, what, what's interesting, because um, Doom actually says to Eddie, he says, do you understand the magnitude of a toon killing a human? Very important line. Yes. Very important line. Because Eddie, Eddie is not a happy person. And, and, it's not, and it is in this part that we, we find out, or shortly thereafter, that we find out uh, why that is. Yes. Although, but first we have to have Judge Doom uh, and his weasel henchmen open up what he calls the dip. Yes. Right. So in theory, you can't kill a tune. Right. We've seen we've seen tunes smashed against things and all this kind of stuff in cartoons for years and years and years. But the Eddie's cop friend says this is the dip and Doom's figured out how to kill a tune. Doom puts on this big black glove, picks up one of the cartoon shoes that's in the Acme factory and submerges it in this mm -hmm. dip, which is a mixture of uh, three chemicals. I remember yes, turpentine one of them. Yeah, it's turpentine, acetone and benzene. But guess what? That actually makes it. What's that? Paint thinner. There you go. Because <laughs> those are the major, the main ingredients of any paint thinner. We'll have those three things in that. I don't and like that also, scene. No, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's scary to the point of gruesome because he doesn't, 
it's like cooking a lobster, right? You're supposed to put the lobster's head in first so that it dies pretty much right away. Yeah. Right. Right. And I don't mean to. I'm sorry, people. I apologize to everyone who loves animals, but that's how you cook a lobster. I don't eat lobster, so don't blame me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't. It's fair to say I do not. Um, but here he's dipping it toe first, and the, obviously the thing is watching itself die as it's going into the. Which thing. is really horrible. It, it's it it's horrendous. I, I wrote fairly gruesome. Uh, and he comes out to, and because it was a red shoe, it, it's his hand is like looks like it's all covered in blood when it comes out of the. Uh, yeah. It's, it's terrible. I don't like that scene. <laughs> yeah, it's really horrible. Yes. But that's Judge Doom is sort of asserting his will over everything, right? He's saying, you know, we will find Roger Rabbit. You know, we will take care of it because he's, you know, he's a tune and it's in his jurisdication because he's the mayor of Toon or the judge of Toontown, et cetera, yes. et cetera, right? We also he's learned saying, that it's because he bought the election. Yes, he spread a lot of simoleons around Toontown. Simoleons, yes, which I guess might not actually, which because it's tunes might not actually be money. Right. <laughs> well, this is important. It actually connects to something later. I will come back to this. That, that's that, right. That this line does connect. All these little bits, every every one of these little things that we keep stopping at, like the clover leaf thing in the beginning, and this particular these particular interchange between Eddie and Doom, it's all clues to what's really going on, which is way way more complex than what you're watching. <laughs> so Eddie returns back to his his apartment or uh, his apartment slash office, uh, only to find Baby Herman there, and Baby Herman reveals something new about the case, which is that Marvin Acme had a will, and according to all the tunes, uh, Marvin Acme's will would leave Toontown to the tunes. Right? But no one has any proof of this. It's only the tunes who think that's the case, but no one has any proof, and no one knows where the will is or what's going on with it. Uh, and if they don't find the, t- the will by midnight that day, then, the, then Toontown goes up for auction and Cloverleaf Industries has put in the highest bid. Right? Right. Yes. Uh, so Eddie, Eddie doesn't care. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting too because we. So again, we've never seen. We don't know this will. Nobody's seen this will, and he makes the point that he doesn't just. Baby Herman is very strong on his convictions about that. This is actually what happened. That that Acme made a pact and a and a promise and to all the tunes. So it's he's very very adamant about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, but you have to take his word for it, right? Because even Eddie brings up, like, "Have you seen it? Do you know what's going on?" And uh, Baby Herman's like, "No, he just told us that that was the case, right?" Right. So no one really knows what's actually going on. Correct. Uh, Correct. So when Eddie goes back inside uh, to his apartment, it turns out that Roger's there. Roger is in fact there, which is probably one of the funniest parts of the movie because it's. Roger bouncing back and forth and all over the the place and trying to convince Eddie to help hide him uh, because he's a wanted man, right? Judge Doom is looking for him. Uh, what I love is the lines about how he found Eddie's office. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he, he asked the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. <laughs> he goes yeah. the whole thing, right? And then he says, but then I asked the guy at the liquor store, and he knew where you lived. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> just, just classic stuff. Yeah, it was very, very good. But what's interesting is um, before he finds Roger in his bed. Yes, okay. which is disturbing. Yes. Well, no, I mean, he was hiding in the... what I forget what they call those beds that fold into the wall, but it was one of those beds. It begins with an M. It'll come to me. Somebody's screaming it right now who is listening. Uh, <laughs> they, he he um, put the glass down on top of uh, the newspaper that has the picture of Acme at the night before when he was at the Ink and Paint Club. Right. Okay. And when he puts it down, he sees something in Acme's pocket, so he actually gets out a magnifying t- glass to look at it, and he sees that there was, in fact, a will and testament because he sees it in the pocket. Yes. Very true. Okay. Yes. So he knows it exists, and he knows it's out there, but he just has no idea where it's gotten to since Acme died. That's right. Yes. But uh, mysteriously, though, Roger convinces Eddie to help him when he reads him a love letter that he wrote to Jessica on a piece of paper he found in Acme's warehouse the night before. Yes. <laughs> or it, it's, it's a piece of paper he took from, uh, from something of Jessica's. Oh, is that what it was? Something of Jessica's, okay. Yes, because yes, that's important later. It is important later. But yes. it was some nice clean paper is how he referred to it. Yeah, a blank, blank sheet of paper that he took from Jessica. Uh, but right before, right after that, the weasels show up and they start interrogating Eddie and they want to know, you know, where's the rabbit? And Eddie manages to hide him, mainly by submerging Roger in the sink and pretending that he's doing his laundry, which is because, really disgusting. Because Roger handcuffed himself to Eddie. Yes, he did. <laughs> the fact that Hoskins can do this uh, physical comedy with nothing on the other end of it. It's amazing, because that's what yeah. he's doing, right? He's doing slapstick physical comedy. Right, and, and not just that, but the whole time he's interacting with the weasels, which are not, which are sticks on, with guns on sticks at that point in time, right, from his point of view when he's acting. He's right. got his, his left hand submerged underwater, and he's holding everything up with his right hand, which I think is interesting because for some reason I remember reading that Hoskins is actually left-handed in real life. So for him to be operating the whole scene and all the physical movement with his right hand during the whole scene even makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, that's strange. Very. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. I mean, it, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, you don't think about it when you're watching the movie because they, it's done so well. And I think a lot of that is because of the way that they managed to take the figures and rather than have the animated figures be flat, they reflect the light from the scene in the, in the film and, and they have that rounded appearance to them. So they really do look like they are, they are there. You know, it's, it, there's a very few places in this movie that it, unless you've watched it many, many times, you can see like, okay, well, that's not an animated prop. You know, that's something else. Or, you know, they're not actually holding the animated rabbit or whatever like that. I mean, very few times. And you have to, like I said, have seen it a few times in order to pick those things up. Right. Or even some people might not realize the first time that they watch this through that the we- – like I said, the weasel – he's acting against guns on sticks because these animated weasels are carrying real weapons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, it's it, amazing stuff. They're, they're really like Jimmy, Jimmy Cagney weasels or something. They are. They're and you weasels. also you also learn at this point in time that they have a weakness. That's right. Because uh, he makes them laugh because, you know, Eddie kicks one of – or one of them kicks another one or something like that. Uh, and they start laughing. And we find out that if they laugh too much, they die, which yes. makes no sense. But it's 
it, again, we've said this before. You establish the fantasy rules and you stick to the rules, then they make sense. Right. Yeah. Right. So he manages to get the weasels, chase the weasels off. He takes Roger over to the bar where Dolores is, so that he can saw the handcuffs off of them. Yes. Uh, and right, they take, they take, in a uh, yeah, in a hidden room. He takes Roger into the hidden room, starts sawing on the handcuffs. Roger pull. He's having a hard time because the table's wobbling, uh, and Roger pulls his hand out of the handcuffs, which makes Eddie very, very angry. <laughs> well, yes, because he says he he mentions he could have done this all along. He said, "No, no, only when the when the comedy was right or something like that. Only only when it was funny. Only when it was funny. Yes. One of the best lines in the movie." <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and at this point, Eddie speculates that Maroon did all this to get Toontown, based on what he ha- right. currently has for information. He speculates that with Dolores and Roger. Um, so yep. he then he then um, leaves Roger with Dolores and goes back to his office where Jessica shows up. Yes, in the movie, that's what happens. In the movie, sorry, yes, yes. But there's what actually in the um, in the if you look at the deleted scenes or things because there's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense right for him to leave Roger in the bar and then go back and take a shower which is what he's doing. Yes. If you stop to think about it for a second, if if you just watch the movie through, it doesn't really make a difference. But what actually happens in the there's a deleted scene where Eddie actually takes his first steps into Toontown. Or he gets picked up by the weasels, rather. I'm sorry, he doesn't go into Toontown, but he gets picked up by the weasels, and he gets a pig head painted on him. Ah. And what he's actually doing in the shower is showering that off. I've seen it's like an animated pig head when you say that, right? Like, yes, I, yes, I, I remember this from something, but I don't. I don't think I've ever seen deleted scenes for this before. So, yeah, it had to be a, just a screenshot I saw somewhere. That's right, yeah. He gets picked up by the weasels, and he's showering off the animated pig head that was drawn on his face. Uh, and it's actually sort of like the scene from Psycho, where the blood's circling the drain. That's the same way it's shot. Oh, okay. And, and that's why he's coming out of the shower when Jessica is has walked into the apartment, which is what gotcha. happened. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I guess watching it through as it is, it doesn't really make much difference to me whether he's no, it doesn't. showered yeah. or not. So, okay. it but, just uh, when you think about it for a second, it's kind of weird. He's like, "Oh, I've got this rabbit that's on the run. Hold on, I'm going to go take a shower." Yes. Yeah. Oh, he was running around. <laughs> he was running around a lot. To be fair, true. Good point. But he he goes. He takes a shower, and Jessica shows up and is trying to convince him that you know he needs to bring her Roger because she needs to keep him safe, and that she didn't have anything to do with any of this. And Eddie does not believe her whatsoever. He she also mentions, and I they kind of drop this later on in the movie. She doesn't she mention that Acme was blackmailing her to play patty cake? Yes. Yes, she does. Uh, and of course, just as Jessica is talking to Eddie and sort of revealing some of these things, uh, Dolores walks in, and unfortunately for Eddie, he had been holding his pants up with his hand. And so as Dolores walks in, he's standing there right in front of Jessica, uh, and his pants are around his ankles, which is not the way you want to be seen when talking to Jessica Rabbit if a woman that you love is right there. Right. And said woman then storms out. Indeed. Yes. Yes. Uh, but Eddie manages to chase her and find out because uh, he had asked Dolores to go down the probate and see who was putting in bids on Toontown. And that's when we find out that it was Cloverleaf, uh, who is the same people who have bought the red car trolley 
we found yes. it. We found out earlier. So they bought the red car trawler and they bought Toontown, and we don't know why this is yet, um, but we will find out later. Yeah. But so they they figure out they've got to go get Roger out of there, do something. So when they go back to the bar, as uh, Eddie is going to get Roger, unfortunately Judge Doom shows up. Well, they hear Roger singing when they show up. Yes, that's, Roger is, that's right. Roger is singing to Merry-Go-Round Broke Down and entertaining everyone in the bar, even though he's supposed to be keeping a low profile. Yes, right. And Merry-Go-Round Broke Down is the uh, famous theme song used for Looney Tunes cartoons. That is correct. Yes. Yes, and so Roger, who's supposed to be keeping a low profile, is singing Merry-Go-Round Broke Down instead. Yes. Probably I, not a good idea. No. I, I like when, he, when uh, Eddie gets mad at him and dragged him back into the speakeasy room. I this conversation that they have is hysterical on a little on one level. And that's like Roger gets very serious at this point. For Roger Rabbit anyway. Right? Because this is the conversation they have about how laughter is an important weapon in your arsenal, that whole thing, which again plays into the end of the movie. Okay. Right. But what I like is did you catch what Roger is sitting on? I, I did not. He's sitting on a soapbox. Literally oh, nice. on nice. a soapbox while he's telling this to, to Eddie. So I, I find that like the funny because mo- even even in his serious moment, he's got this little bit of humor going on. Love nice. it because it's just a wooden box that says soap on the side of it, and he's sitting on it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I like it, but yes, Judge Doom shows up and uh, has decided that he found, he figured out where Roger is, and they go to hide in the speakeasy room. But the judge knows that he's there because he sees the chaos. He sees that they've been playing merry-go-round, broke down. Yep. Uh, and he has an ingenious way of getting Roger out, which is the old sh- haircut and a shave two bits. Yes. Um, it's a, yeah, you, you, you knock and you go shave and a haircut and then you knock twice and people go two bits. So it's yes. very funny. But um, I, I like that there's, there's another quick reference before that. It's a Jimmy Stewart reference. So I figured I'd mention it. Absolutely. Right. Is, is that one of the... Doom offers the pat- the bar patrons five thousand dollars to divulge where Roger is. Right, he writes it up on the board. He like races the menu on the chalkboard and writes five thousand dollar reward Roger Rabbit on the board. Yes. Okay. In a in a very screechy way. Yes. Yeah. This was uh this was what literally in in the movie theater like sound wasn't great back then, but it still was very painful when I saw this in the movie theater. I remember. Um, and uh, one of the patrons says, oh, yeah, I know where there's a rabbit. And he pr- he, then he puts his arm around a dead space, and he goes, my buddy Harvey right here. Because, and that's a reference to the Har- Harvey the, rab- the Invisible Rabbit that's J- Jimmy Stewart's buddy in I forget whatever movie that is. Oh, yeah, in, uh, in Harvey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it is Harvey, Harvey okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, the movie's Harvey. That's right. Yeah, yeah. there you go. That's why I forgot, because sometimes I get confused when it's the title character. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so when when Judge Doom finally does shave in a haircut two bits too many times, Roger bursts out of the wall, you know, tapping his two, saying two bits. The the judge catches him and basically pronounces sentence right there. Says he's going to dip him uh, until Eddie gets the judge to give him a last drink in a nice reminiscent of the Bugs and Daffy back and forth. In uh, in duck hunting that cartoon where because it's yes you do no you don't to arguing <laughs> with Roger until Roger finally agrees that he wants the drink drinks the drink and goes off like a steam whistle yet again he, he does also we get we do find out at this point why the hy- why they know the hyenas will end up dead I mean the the uh, weasels will end up dead because their hyena cousins died from laughing D- yes right 
Which I, I was wondering if that was supposed to be a deleted scene because the hyenas are actually credited. Are they? I did not yeah. notice this. So I was oh. wondering if that was a deleted scene or not because there's no. I never saw remember seeing the hyenas at all in this movie. Ever, no matter what, how many times I've seen it. Mm. Huh. At this point, so. Strange. Interesting. Okay. Mm. The great missing hyena mystery. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, but once that happens, they manage to uh, escape, right? Eddie yes. and and Roger manage to escape. They go into the weasel's car. They find Benny the cab has an animated cab in the back of it has been held prisoner. They free Benny, and that's the the car that they drive around yes. the streets while the weasels are chasing them. We we also got our final clue, or one of our final clues, when they're escaping. Yes, exactly. That's right. Go ahead. Uh, when they're escaping, Eddie pushes over the canister of dip in the direction of Doom and the Weasels. Now, the Weasels back off, which makes sense because they don't want to get dipped, but guess who also backs off? Doom. Now, if Doom was human, he has nothing to fear from the dip. That's true. Okay, so we learned something weird is going on at that particular instant, but you have to be very careful to observe it because no, no words are exchanged, just he also backs off. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Huh. Now, you know what's interesting about Roger and Eddie riding around in Benny? What's that? Uh, so you know how there are a lot of times that there, um, the animated characters are worked around the live-action characters in most of yes. the cases? Yes, yes, yes. There are some points during, this, during the various car rides that they do in Benny that uh, Eddie himself is actually animated because they couldn't get the interaction to play right. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, but it happens fast enough that you don't really notice. Yeah. But if you've ever seen the, how they did this rig of Eddie driving Benny the cab, it's basically like a just the the frame of a car without the actual car being, you know, the shell being there. And so he's driving it around, and then they animated Benny and Roger with him. It's kind of freaky. And it also is. at the same time. Yeah. And Benny's so cool. He really is. Yes, very much so. Uh, but they managed to escape the weasels and go and hide out in a movie theater, which is where we saw the Goofy cartoon uh, that is not from 1947. Yes. That's this, what they are watching. That's Goofy Gymnastics is what this one's called, right? Is that what? Uh, it's, it's a how-to, but I don't remember. It's how to do something. I, I, I want to say it's the gymnastics one because I think that's – because it's made like two years. It's made 1949 is the, what I looked it up as. So, Right. So – they're watching that, and this is when Eddie reveals the full story of what happened to his brother. He tells Roger, because Roger's trying to get him to laugh, and he's too much of a sour puss to laugh. And uh, So Eddie, he, it, it's revealed what happened to his brother, uh, which is that a tune killed him, which we found out a little earlier from Dolores. By but pushing a, tune, a piano on his head. Yes. Yeah. And Eddie broke his arm, but it... it killed his brother and what they know about the tune that killed him is that he stole several hundred thousand simoleons from toontown yep we back we to also, the simoleons yep we learn that he has red eyes yes and a, and a high squeaky voice and eddie will never forget his laugh that's right okay we also during this scene learn that roger's favorite character in what he calls picture shows or something like that is goofy which it well should be. It well should be. We agree. We, we, we like Roger's taste. Everybody loves a good Goofy. 
That's what I'm saying. Totally. All right. So they get interrupted by Dolores, who comes in. You know, her and Eddie sort of reconcile. And as they're walking out of the theater to try and find a way to go hide, like driving out of town, a newsreel runs with R.K. Maroon. And it's him selling his studio to Cloverleaf Industries in a huge deal, right? Yep. Huge land deal. And that's when Eddie figures out what's going on. Now, we don't necessarily know what's going on, but he knows that Mar- we know that Maroon's involved, right? So he has to go back to R.K. Maroon to figure out what's, what's, what's the story. So he goes to R.K. Maroon Studios that night with Roger uh, and goes to confront Maroon, leaves Roger behind to honk the horn if something happens. Right, but he's told Maroon he has the will. That's right. So, and he knows that Maroon would be interested in the will because when he goes to confront Maroon, what has happened is Maroon reveals that after Eddie gets the drop on him because Maroon tried to pull a gun to get the will, Eddie sprays him with seltzer water, gets the gun, and gets the drop on him. Maroon uh, reveals that Cloverleaf was not interested in buying the studio unless they could also buy the Acme factory. Correct. And so, we learned that Maroon was going to use the patty cake pictures exactly. to blackmail Acme. <laughs> yeah. Which seems odd, but yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It's and then he, then he gets shot dead. He does. The long <laughs> gun gets shot through the window and shoots Maroon. So he, uh, we, in the intervening time, Roger gets hit over the head with a frying pan by Jessica stuffed in the back of a car. So... Eddie has to chase after the killer, and he chase, He ends up seeing Jessica driving away and starts chasing her, and she drives straight into Toontown. So now Eddie has to go into Toontown for the first time since his brother was killed. And to do so, he pulls out of his car a cartoon gun with cartoon bullets. Yes. Uh, I, kind of interesting. Um, I, I guess they would be called Tejano bullets, right? Because they're kind of like that that Texas independence type of, uh, you know, where you have the cross of the Texans and the Indians and the Mexicans are all represented in the bullets. Yep. Hmm. So I called them Tejano bullets in my notes. I like it. Also, one of the bullets was one of our Star Wars connections. Oh, okay. Do tell. Jim Cummings. Yep. Was um, one of the bullets. And what does he do in Star Wars? Currently, a voice of um, Hondo in the Star Wars Clone Wars. Ah, very, very interesting. Yeah. Pretty much, if you have a voice acting gig, um, Jim Cummings has probably done it. Pretty much. <laughs> That's probably he does, true. He does almost everything. Yeah. Really yep. does. So Eddie chases Jessica into Toontown after after. Now, like you said, Todd, he ha- he has to redeem himself piece by piece. After he pours out his bottle of wild turkey, throws it in the air, and shoots it with one of the cartoon bullets. So he's done with the drinking. He's done with the drinking. Yep. So he drives into Toontown. And into Jessica's car. Yes, right into Jessica's car because he gets distracted by... And, and like you said, we could, we could be here the rest of the day naming off all the things that you see in Toontown. But it's basically yes. every silly symphony you could ever imagine is in that first stretch when he drives into Toontown. Yes. Uh, it, what I like is if you pay very close attention, it's, it's going down the entrance to Toontown into the main town area is actually a travel through the history of animation because they yep. get 
it gets more and more current to the actual date of the movie as they go further into Toontown. That's right. Okay. Because yeah. um, you even see the reluctant dragon on the side of the road and all sorts of things like that as well. So, Yeah, you see the reluctant dragon many, many times. You do, including the at the very end scene as well. So, Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Eddie, Eddie goes, crashes into town. Um, you know, it's the typical craziness you would expect from Toontown. He goes, he sees the silhouette of Jessica in a building. He goes into the building, gets in the elevator, and the elevator person is Droopy Dog, <laughs> who slams him against the floor and the ceiling multiple times uh, until he runs into the room where Jessica is. And it turns out not to be Jessica, but some crazy bucktooth woman who is chasing him because he's a man. <laughs> a man! <laughs> It's frightening. Yeah, it's very frightening. And we this is when this is part of like, so Hoskins had to be a cartoon character basically for a, this part of the movie and then the very end. So they put him through all the different things that a cartoon character would do. And this part, of course, is animated because he he flies out the window. And this is where we get Bugs and and Mickey appearing side by side, well, wearing parachutes back, as they fall beside him. A, yeah, he backs into a men's room that's not there because it's out of order, but it's literally gone. Yes. It is absolutely not there. Uh, yeah, so he falls out that window. Uh, Bugs gives him a spare parachute, <clears throat> what Eddie thinks is a parachute, and turns out to be a spare tire. <laughs> uh, so, Well, we learned why that is earlier on in the movie, right? Because you have, you, can, you have to be careful with what you say to a tune or ask them for because they take it very literally. Because remember, earlier he orders a drink on the rocks, and he, then he shouts after the waiter, not ice, not rock, not actual rocks, right? But he still gets actual rocks anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> he ordered scotch on the rocks. And here he asked for a spare. He didn't ask for a spare parachute. He asked for a spare, so he got one. That's very true. <laughs> yep. All right. So he he goes through all of this stuff right and he finally gets caught and uh, gets away from he gets caught by the crazy woman who is not Jessica uh manages to get away by she starts chasing after him he pulls up a strip of the road to run her into the wall <laughs> and he manages to confront Jessica in an alleyway Jessica shoots over his shoulder at Judge Doom who was about to shoot Eddie and it turns out that we find out that Judge Doom is who killed RK Maroon Correct. because he drops the gun at Eddie's feet so Jessica and Eddie have to chase RK, uh, chase Judge Doom, rather, and the, they can't figure out what to do. The cops are coming after them. Eddie sticks out his thumb because Benny the Cab had told him earlier, or he sticks out his thumb saying we need to go that way, and Benny the Cab shows up because Benny said, anytime you need a ride, just stick out your thumb. Right. And he was correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yep, so they get in Benny the Cab, rush out of Toontown, only for Judge Doom to pour a big vat of dip onto the road, spin Benny out, and capture both Eddie and Jessica. Right. But we do learn that one of the reasons why Acme and Jessica was meet, were meeting, okay, is that Acme was to give Jessica the will because he thought his life was in danger. Exactly. She wanted him, uh, he wanted to give her the will for safekeeping, which right. is why it's important that Roger got the will from Jessica's stuff, right? Because she did have it, and then Roger took it. Right. Well, we don't know at this point that he took it. We don't actually find that until the very, very end of the movie. Yes, very true. Right. Very true. But spoilers. But even, well, she didn't believe that it was actually a will either because she said it was just a blank sheet of paper. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, but they get captured. 
uh, have to go back to the Acme factory. So Doom takes them to the Acme factory, uh, where he reveals the whole plan to them, right? Um, we don't know where Roger is until shortly thereafter. Roger shows up in uh, Eddie's car, and then Benny the cab, who's still spun out by the side of the road, drives the car. But they're headed to chase after Jessica and Eddie. But Doom reveals the entire plan, which is he owns Cloverleaf Industries. And they will destroy Acme, the Acme factory, and RK Maroon Studio. And they, bu- and they bought up the red car because there's going to be a freeway. A giant highway that will run through Toontown, the studios and everything. And he describes this whole vision of gas stations and restaurants and hotels and automobile dealerships and billboards as far as the eye can see along the side of this freeway. And Eddie mocks him as completely insane. Well, I love how he ends it when he goes through this whole thing. He goes, my God, it will be beautiful. Because that's like such a classic intonation of... Of Christopher Lloyd, right? It's, it's oh yes, just... <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> and then uh, he I, he actually said oh, that sounds like an idea that can only have been concocted by a tune. Yes, and you know what the kicker of all this is, right? Of course. Well, we'll find out very soon. Well, I'm I'm talking about the real life version. Um, this all actually happened. Yes, it did. Yeah, the actual the buying up of the red car trolley and other lands and things like that in order for the freeway to go through and not revealing what your true plan is, that all actually happened in history. Yes. All true. (laughs) Yeah. Some of the theaters are still on that original road, but some have bigger areas elsewhere or some have made their original area bigger. Like Disney originally had one near the Hyperion Bridge, right? And then they moved to their Burbank studio. That's right. So – the freeway there ended up causing a little bit more problems in California since it caused traffic and not not the not the high, not what Judge June was imagining. That's because the U.S. government did not plan properly for freeways because they presumed when they created them that no family would ever own more than one vehicle. Very true. So... Very true. Also, they could put tolls on California, and people, I, I bet people would pay them. And California will never have tolls. No. Nice try, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. But that, that was the crazy plan. That's, that's what was behind all of this. Uh, so Judge Doom reveals that he has this giant sprayer of dip, 500 gallons of dip, and it will spray, you know, knock Toontown, which is right behind the Acme factory. It will knock Toontown and erase it from the map. Uh, and he's getting ready to turn this on, disappears for a minute, and leaves the weasels in charge of Eddie and Jessica. Uh, but Ro- or Roger comes in, excuse me, Roger comes in, barges in to save the day. Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, that doesn't work out so well because the weasels drop a ton of bricks on his head. He gets captured too, uh, and 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 that's when Roger he heads and, off. Because yeah, that's when Doom, Doom heads off. Yeah. Doom slips on some eyeballs because there were it was Acme and there were boxes of Acme eyeballs that had been knocked <laughs> over earlier and all the eyeballs were all over the floor. And he slips over and is holding his eye as he walks off. Right. Yes. And so he disappears uh, and the weasels are left in charge. Roger and Jessica are tied up in front of the dip sprayer so they'll get sprayed with dip. And so Eddie hits on an idea as one of the weasels starts laughing and starts doing a vaudeville act, basically, uh, to merry-go-round broke down all around this the Acme uh, plant, and basically kills the weasels with laughter. Yes. Note, merry-go-round broke down, played by a convenient calliope. 
Well, doesn't everyone have a convenient calliope? Of course. Uh, apparently, Marvin Acme did. I yes. keep it under my bed. I pull it out when it's convenient. Wow, that is. By the convenient. way, by the way, that's this episode's hashtag: convenient calliope. Convenient yes. Calliope. All right. Okay, it's happening. There it is, folks. Convenient calliope. Yep. I'm so just it. tweet us when you when you hear it. We're yeah. sorry, it's long. Yep, that's okay. <laughs> it happens. The episode's long. It's our 100th episode. It's a celebration. So Eddie ends up having to fight Doom because Doom comes back and Eddie runs him over with a steamroller. Uh, well, no, no, he goes to he goes to run Eddie over with a steamroller, but then yes. Eddie Eddie starts throwing glue at him, and then he ends up stuck on the steamroller and the floor. Very true. That's what happens, and then yeah. he gets run over by the steamroller. Yes, which does not kill him, which seems odd for a human being. Well, um. Yes, we happen. We we learn in the matter of moments that a doom is actually a tune, and uh, b we learn that uh, he also happens to be the tune that killed Eddie's brother. Yes, because his his eyes pop out, and you hear his loud his red eyes, and you hear his high squeaky voice, and he admits he's the one that killed Eddie's brother. That's right. Uh, so Eddie has to fight him in a series of battle battles, basically around the studio until he finally is able to turn the dip machine around and turns the drain so that the dip sprays Judge Doom. Also, Doom has superpowers. He's a shapeshifter of some sort. Yes, he's got springs on his feet, and he turns his hand into a buzzsaw. So he's Inspector Gadget. <laughs> Apparently, partially, I'm not sure. <laughs> that, that's what I hear when I hear that. Yes, I, I guess, um... So yeah, so then Eddie gets a uh, one of those uh, punching ba- bag hammer things, right? Yes, boxing glove hammer things, and uh, he shoots it apparently at Doom, but he's not actually aiming for Doom; he's aiming at something behind Doom. Yes, just the drain. Yep, he flips the flips the drain, and the dip sprays all over Doom and ends the menace. Uh, manages to drive the big dip machine through the wall into Toontown where it promptly gets run over by a train. Uh, and if you want to play pause and look at the silhouettes in the train, that's probably going to be um, about another hour's worth of episode of all the people who are hidden in that train. <laughs> yeah. Because there's lots of... Sil- those silhouettes are all famous cartoon characters. Yeah, and it's not just that they're convenient cartoon characters, but they're all uh, either dying or committing a murder. Yes. It's a play on the Ten Little Indians. Yes. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Ah. The Agatha Christie uh, story. Interesting. I didn't realize that. Cool. Which takes place on a train. Yes, well, like many Agatha Christie stories. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Yep. Uh, so all the tunes come in, and they see Judge Doom's body, and everybody's happy that, that he's out of the way, but they still don't have the will until uh, Dolores looks over at Eddie's shirt, and she sees the ink stain that Marvin Acme sprayed him with the other night. And Eddie all of a sudden has a realization. He pulls out the love letter, asks Roger to read it, and it turns out that that's the will because the ink reappears, and there's Marvin Acme's will. And he has indeed led left Toontown to the tunes. To all the tunes. Yes. That's the important thing, because it's not like just the Disney tunes or the Looney tunes or the Maroon tunes, I guess. You know, it's everyone. That's right. Yes. And, uh, and of course, Eddie then turns in what's left of Doom and 
the piece of rope that they the cops were looking at earlier, and he says if you compare the paint, you'll probably find that it, that Roger is innocent. So he he actually manages to do what he set out to do, which was exonerate Roger. Yes, right. exactly right. And the, the coup de gras, of course, is Roger. Um, you know, harasses Eddie a little bit more, and we're trying to figure out if Ro- if Eddie has. Uh, made his way to becoming a better person or whether he's still a sourpuss and Roger asked the question like oh you're not upset about this because he gets him with the joy buzzer uh, and Eddie says well does this answer your question and he picks Roger up and kisses him smack dab on the lips yeah he does <laughs> and so at the end that's, that's the final piece there Todd the well they all walk off into the they all walk off into the sunset of uh, Toontown Right, but I'm saying the kiss is that's his final way of redeeming himself. Yes, that's well that's the yes, the his uh his story and redemption are complete. Indeed. Uh and that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit because it's just an awesome movie. Yes it is. It's really good. Oh by the way, I forgot to mention that both Porky Pig and Tinkerbell say goodbye to you, you know, that's when, right. you, when you watch Which the was credits. again yeah. part of the um that was again part of the deal. Yes, they had to appear together, equal screen time. All that. Yes, yes. What's interesting is I like that it's kind of sort of Porky Pig invents saying that's all, folks. At this point in time, right? Yeah, you right. said something that's like right. the sound of it, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, that and that ends. Uh, you know, two interesting things about this movie is first of all, did you know that it was the most expensive movie of the 1980s to make? I did yeah. not. Yeah, so it, its budget was $70 million, which at the time was like, you know, making like a $300 million movie today or something, like $250,000 million movie, you know. Yeah, I know it was extremely expensive. Yes. Uh, but it did end up making a lot of money. It really did. Uh, also interesting is that at the time it also had the longest running credits of any movie ever. I did not know that. Yes. Wow. That makes sense, though, considering the animation probably took, you know, a bajillion times. A bajillion times. Really? All the work that went into it. Yeah. yeah. All right, so are, do we have more that we want to say, or we, should we rate no. this? I think we said, like I said, we weren't going to call out everything in this movie because it'd be impossible to. I mean, look how long the podcast is already. And uh, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so. Eight and a half, Go. All right, first up, Cheryl Perlmutter, your rating, madam. Four and a half. Very nice. Very nice. I, All really, right. I really hope this comes on the Blu-ray soon. I completely agree. Me too. I completely agree, yes. All right. I, I will time travel and save myself some money to do it. I appreciate that. If you could just send <laughs> all of us back a copy, that would be great. Yes. If, if I can manage it, I will. Okay. I'm not sure right. I'll be able to manage it, but, you know, whatever. All right. <laughs> Bree, your thoughts. All right, so as I mentioned toward the beginning of this episode, this was the first time I had ever seen um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I am glad I saw it now because I could appreciate it more. I don't think I could have a few years ago. Um, I wasn't as into classic films and film noir like Todd was saying like I am now. Um, so being this took place in the 40s, yeah, that was really cool. So right away I started appreciating it from that moment, and I love how they mix the live action with animation. But yeah, just the characters are so much fun. I love Roger. The whole cast is great, um, and the voice the voices are just fantastic and perfect for each character. So I'm actually going to give this one a four. 
and I can't wait to own it on DVD at some point. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Todd? Um, I've seen this movie about a bajillion times. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. It's, it's such a fun movie, and there's so much going on, and what's great is because there's so much going on, it's really hard to remember it all, so you watch it again, and you go, oh, yeah, or oh, I don't remember seeing that all the time, every time you watch this movie. I, I just feel like it's just got endless amounts of stuff to give to any viewer. Um, I really enjoy it. I think it's well done. Uh, the acting is really, really, really good in this. Um, and to me, I'm going to agree with my wife and go with a four and a half. I will have to agree with everyone. It is fantastic. I see some, I'm like you, Todd. I see something every new every time I see it. Uh, and I can watch it without, you know, without hesitation. You know, I, I think I'd watched it just a couple of weeks ago. Um, not looking ahead at the calendar, and then I saw that it was coming up. I'm like, you know what? I want to watch it again. That's perfectly fine. And so I did, and loved it again. Uh, this is a five. It's a five star movie for me. High, highest recommendation. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, go out and check it out, folks. This one's right up there with with Mary Poppins or or some of the other great Disney films. So definitely worth your time if you have not seen it, and if you have, just listen to the show and watch it again. That's what I say to you. Mm-hmm. All right, so that is going to do it for episode 100 of the Disney Film Project. Hard to Yay. believe, people. Yay, triple digits. Woo-hoo. That's right. Almost two years. We're getting close. Yes, wow. just a few mere episodes from two years. That's mm-hmm. right. Did you ever think? No. Um, I was hoping, but I didn't. wasn't yeah. sure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, I knew I knew we'd be fine because we love movies, we love talking about movies, and we love talking to each other. So it's all good. Okay. Indeed. All right. So uh, until next week, you can tweet us, like we said, convenient calliope, at Diz Film Project, and let us know what you think. Uh, when you're listening to the show, you can go over to Facebook, Disney Film Project there, and uh, talk to us on there. Or go check out uh, the website, DisneyFilmProject.com. So until next week, folks, we will see you soon. A laugh can be a very powerful thing. Why sometimes in life, it's the only weapon we have. Here's to pencil pushers. May they all get lead poisoning. Please, Eddie! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> <laughs>